Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be reading Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 24, and we are going to be reading until verse 30. Just one little event, a pretty lovely event, but a just one event we're going to be reading about in the history of the Lord Jesus' life. So Mark Chapter 7, verse 24, this is the word of the Lord. And from there, he, that's Jesus, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your promise that where your word is read and spoken and proclaimed, it will produce what you intended. And so we pray that that would happen. We pray that you would work faith in all of us, and we know that that would not happen without your spirit. And so we are grateful for your promised Holy Spirit, and we pray that he would open up eyes and ears and hearts to hear and receive your word as the voice of our good shepherd. And not just the good shepherd, but the good shepherd who has already laid down his life for the sheep. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have some children here. We're very grateful to have children here. And uh, as we say here, when you are a child, there are things that sometimes you won't understand every single thing in the worship service, not everything in the sermon. But don't let anyone tell you that that means you can't understand lots of things and even the most important things. So, Mr. Stanton read for us a passage from the Old Testament. So, this is the part of the Bible that was given before Jesus came. He read a part of the Bible uh, from the Old Testament. And we always pick a part from the Old Testament that works with the passage in the New Testament that we're preaching from. So, in that passage, there was a story about Solomon, that's David's son Solomon, and he's building a temple. He's building a beautiful temple palace for the Lord. And Solomon gets help from one of his dad's friends. Who can tell me what that man's name was? His name is Hiram, and he was the king of, it's a silly name for a country, Hiram king of Tyre. The name of the country is Tyre. So he was Hiram king of Tyre, and he, got, and he gave him lots of gifts so that Solomon can build God's house with them. Now, that has a connection to the passage we just read. And when you figure it out, I want you to whisper to your parents that you've figured it out, and you can tell them that, okay? Or you can wait until later if you really want to. But there's a connection there. You can remember... Kids can remember what the most important parts of the passage were. The first thing that this passage teaches us is that there is only one God. There's not lots of gods. Every country doesn't get its own God. There is one God. One God created 
all of the world, all of the universe, the heavens, and all of the planets, and all of the different stars, God, the one God made all of them. And that is the God of Israel. The God of David and Solomon, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Ruth, and Boaz. That God is the only God. The second thing is that all of us, because we have sinned, we are enemies of that God. That we are born as enemies of that God because we sin against him. But the third thing, the best part, is that that God, the one God, out of all of the sinners on earth that deserve to be his enemies, he has picked a family to treat with incredible special love. And not give them what they deserve, but to treat them like his children. And they can count on him loving them. Those are the most important parts that are being taught in this passage. This is what Jesus wants us to remember and know from this passage. I want to ask a few questions here before we get started. Questions that this passage helps us to answer. Are there some people who deserve God's love more than others? How about, are there some people who just cannot be saved? They're just beyond being saved. They just can't be saved. They're, they're not people that God can save. Another question that this passage answers is, why in the world does the world hate the church so much? The next question, which is a very important question, well, they're all important, is can I trust that God is my father? I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty. Can I trust that God is my father and that he will treat me like I am his kid? Friends, this, these are questions that God wants us to be able to have the answers to. And he gives us this passage in the Bible. Lots of things happened to Jesus that weren't recorded in the Bible, but this one was. And it was recorded so that we would be able to answer these questions. So the first point, first point is this, the God of Israel, see if it comes up there, the God of Israel is the creator of heaven and earth. So this woman, she was not from Israel. This woman was a Syrophoenician. So that's her ethnicity. We have different ethnicities. And we also have places that we live. So my ethnicity is Dutch-ish. But the place I live is Canada. Okay, so this person, this lady who came up to Jesus, she was a Syrophoenician and that was her ethnicity. But the place that she lived was in the area of Tyre and Sidon. This is a place outside of Israel. And Jesus left Israel. He was trying to go away from the crowds. They were making him kind of tired. And he was having a rest. And he did so in the area of Tyre and Sidon. And so he's there in, you could say, enemy territory. In a place that didn't worship the God who made heaven and earth. Not the God of Israel. They worshiped false gods. And so Jesus is there. And this lady comes to him. There, this lady is not from Israel. And she was not only from, is not from Israel. She was actually not an Israel, Israelite in any possible way. Okay? And Jesus responds to her when she asks for help. She asks for help with her daughter. Her daughter has an unclean spirit. And Jesus responds to her indicating, you know, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. And when Matthew tells the story, he includes that part. He came for the children. He came for the household of God, the house of Israel. 
And here's what we learn very clearly here. God is the God of Israel. She's not from Israel. She's not even a worshiper of Israel's God. And so Jesus puts it this way. It's not right to take food that belongs to the kids and take it away from the kids, the family table, and take it away from them so they don't get to eat and then throw that food to the dogs. The point here is very clear. There is only one God. There's one God. The fancy word for this is monotheism. There's one God. There is only one God. All things that exist, every single thing that you have ever seen or will see, even the things you can't see, there's lots of things that exist that you can't see, all of them were made by one God. He is the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. We see this this, uh, phrase, the Lord omnipotent reigneth. Omnipotent. What does omnipotent mean? All-powerful. Potent. If somebody, if somebody smells, has a potent smell, that means that they smell strongly. It's a potent smell. It, omnipotent means all-powerful. God has all-powerful. He, he is all-powerful. He has all powers. And so if God was not the only God, if there was lots of gods, if there was lots of kings, then you couldn't say that a king amongst other kings is omnipotent. Because he kind of needs the help of the other kings. He needs them to agree with him. They have to get along. That means he's not all powerful. And so we see that polytheism, that means the belief that there's more than one God, doesn't even work logically. doesn't make sense. Because if there's more than one God, then you can't have somebody who's actually God because God means that you are all powerful. A God who needs help from other gods is not God. A God who fights with other gods cannot be a God. There is only one God. We believe in a universe. Universe means that there's many in one, but that it's one creation. There's not lots of different creations. We have one creation. And everything in that universe works together. You know, we don't have a God of the water and a God of the sky and a God of thunder and a God of soil and a God of this and a God of that and a God of this. You guys have taken science in school. You know that everything all works together. It wouldn't make sense that there would be a God of the birds and then a God of the trees. The birds and the trees are together. They have to work together in an ecosystem. You know, everything works together because it has one God who oversees everything. A very sweet verse in the Bible is in Colossians 1, verse 15, talking about Jesus. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. How many things were created by him? All things. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions and rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, that's Jesus, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He didn't just make everything, he's holding them all together. You can study science, and science is not the enemy of a Christian. It is the friend of Christians, because we are studying the things that God has made. And everything that you will discover through science is discovering how God made things and how he holds them together. 
We can look at a water molecule and we can see how God has designed it. But what we are looking at is God's design of that. He created all things and he holds all things together. And that God is the God of Israel. And how did God show that the God of Israel is the real God? Isaiah was asked this same question. In Isaiah 46, he answers this question very lovely. We won't turn that. You can if you want. But he answers it in this way. I am the God who knows the end from the beginning, and I will tell you the future before it happens. God is the God who told the future before it happens. God said things would happen through prophets, and then those things happened. And not kind of like me telling the future, like, tomorrow you're going to have a pretty good day. Well, that's not telling the future. God told very specific things that would happen in history, and then they happened. God showed control over nature in this way. God showed control over history in this way. God predicted the rise and fall of kings and emperors. In the book of Daniel, God prophesied through Daniel, all, there, there'd be a succession of empires until that would happen in the world, until the Lord Jesus came, until the Messiah came. And what do you know? That exact thing happened. And Jesus was born during the reign of the last empire that, that God predicted through Daniel. But we also see that God proves that he is the God, the God of Israel is the God of the universe by being faithful to his church, by being faithful to his family. And we see the history of God's faithfulness to a small, obscure, sinful family a church, you could say, a nation. We see this in the Old Testament, and we see this in the New Testament. The God of Israel is the God who created the heavens and the earth. We also see that this is true, is that the universe that is described in Scripture, the truth that is described in Scripture, the good and the evil that is described in Scripture, that actually works and lines up with reality. What is described in scripture is actually something that you can see shows up in reality. The world's religions are not all helpful in giving us a picture of God's identity. There are some who teach that. You know, we can learn something about God from all the different religions. They're all gonna, they all have something good that they can offer to us and teach us about God. You put them all together and then you will know who God is. That's not true. The Bible's very clear about that. It's not like there's just one God, but he shows up different ways in different countries. So in Israel, he shows up as Yahweh, but in other countries, he shows up as this God or that God or this God or that God. No, the God of Israel is the true God. And the gods of the nations are all false gods. And so we don't learn anything about God from these other religions. Even if some of the things that they say are true. Some of them might say, do not murder. It's true. There's only two genders. That's true. A husband should be faithful to his wife. That's true. You shouldn't steal. That's true. There are true things that they would say, but we don't learn them from those. What they do say that is true wasn't revealed to them religiously. 
It didn't come through their prophets by God. That's just simply by being a human. You can know these things. God says they're written into creation. They're written on the hearts of even people who hate him. But they do not know God. This is true for Allah. This is true for Vishnu. This is true for Mother Earth. This is true for spirit animals. These are not different true ways to think about God. There is one God. And he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of Israel, of Ruth and Isaiah and Daniel and Naomi and Sarah and Jonah and Micah and Malachi and Judah. And this God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, he has a people. He has a family. He is their God and they are his people. And if you're not part of his people of that people, you are not God's people. You are not the children of God. And that takes us to our second point. Since the fall into sin, by nature, we are all enemies of God. Since the fall into sin, by nature, we are all enemies of God. This is not how God created us, though. God created us perfect. God created humanity as not just good, but very good. Remember what he said after all the days of creation? He said, it is good. But after he created humans, Adam and Eve, he said, that's very good. We were created, and Adam and Eve, we were created perfect and good. No sin. We were created righteous. But then in Adam and Eve, we fell. We, we fell from righteousness. We became enemies of God along with them. And since then... By nature, that means our truest selves, we are enemies of God. Not only was Jesus' response emphasizing that there was only one God, the God of Israel, he made it very clear that there are people who are not his children. Many people say, oh, we're all children of God. Well, in the sense that he made everyone, that's true. But the Bible is very, very clear. You can see this in Ephesians chapter 2. We can see this in Romans 5 that we read this morning. That we are all born dead in sin. We are born children of wrath. Our hearts do not love God. Our truest selves, we are enemies of God. Jesus says in John chapter, four, verse, uh, John chapter 8 verse 44, he's talking to people who do not believe in him. And he says, you are, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do the father's, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does what, uh, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his, out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is not saying that Satan made these people. That's somebody saying when he says that Satan is their father, he's saying you're taking after him. Your truest self, you have the same problem that he has. Your heart has hatred toward God, and you're not his children. You are his enemy. Now, you might see that the Bible says this is true, but then, but isn't it true that God seems to be good to all people? If it's true that what the Bible says, if it's true that all people are born in sin and born as his enemies, uh, why is it that we see God being good to all people? Does that mean he must be their God too? If somebody gets a good job, the Bible says all good things come from God. And so God must be giving that person that job. So does that mean that God is their God? We see that sometimes farmers who hate God get rain at just the right time. 
and they get no rain at just the right time. God is being very good to them. Does that mean that he must be their God? That they must be his children? The answer to this is actually quite a lovely answer. I want to read from Luke chapter 6, 27, and see if you can find the answer in this passage. If everybody who, uh, if there are people who are not God's children, if everybody's born as not God's child, how do we explain God being good to them? Luke 6, 27. But I say to you, this is Jesus talking, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For here here it is. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Did you notice the answer here? God has enemies. But he is good to them. So somebody receiving goodness and care and kindness from God. Doesn't mean that they must not be his enemy. Because the Lord is very good and patient with his enemies. But the Bible tells us that one day that patience will run out and Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now the Old Testament, so that's the books of the Bible that were given to the church before Jesus, was the Bible calls it a tutor. It was a tutor, like a school teacher, teaching God's people things uh, because they were Immature because the the most mature Israelite had not come yet, and that's Jesus. And so we saw last time that one of those things that it taught as a tutor was the idea of clean and unclean. And so remember, they had extra rules in the Old Testament, which food to eat, what things they can't touch, um, different, different rules like that, different clothes that they could wear and not wear. And this was meant to teach them that there's such a thing as cleanness and uncleanness. Of course, being unclean before God was the main point. And so it taught them the category of clean and unclean. Now we're looking at something, another category that God gave in the Old Testament that was meant to teach us. The category of Jew and Gentile. And through this, God was saying that there is such a thing as being not a child of God. There's such a thing of being not in the family of God. There's such a thing as being not the people of God. This is what this category was teaching us. It's like an object lesson. Teaching us to know, okay, there is such a thing as being God's enemy. A non-family member of God. Somebody who cannot call on God as father. A person 
who, even though he's being blessed by God, even though he's enjoying God's things, is doing so as an enemy of God, of a God who is being kind and patient with him while he uses God's stuff and refuses to worship and love him. In fact, maybe giving other gods credit for the things that the real God is doing. And so the Old Testament, this is the scripture that the Bible books that were given before Jesus, that category of Jew and Gentile, taught the people of God that there's such a thing as being outside the family of God. And this is the natural state of all people. But of course, this was also a teaching tool, a picture that there was such a thing of being part of the family of God. That takes us to our next point, which is this. God has a privileged household of undeserving former enemies. God has a privileged household of undeserving former enemies. Now, Jesus has this little parable that there are, uh, there's children at the table. In Jesus' parable, there are children at the table. And so you might say, okay, the Bible says that everyone is born as a child, uh, not of God, but a child of wrath, as a sinner, as an enemy of God. Well, then if you look at Jesus' parable, how many people should be at that table? That table should be empty. There shouldn't be any children at God's table. But there are. Why are there children at God's table? If we're all born as enemies of God, what are children doing there? Because John 3.16 says that God has only one son who is naturally God's child. Oh, the good news is this, that even though all the world is full of rebels and enemies of God. Because even though none of them deserve to be at God's table, God goes into the world and he plucks people who are enemies and says, mine. I'm going to make you mine. I'm going to take an undeserving person. I'm going to choose you. I'm going to adopt you into my family. The Bible talks about this as kind of like a marriage as well. Where a man looks and he finds a wife he says, not everyone's going to be my wife, but you are going to be someone who I'll have special affection and attention for. Somebody who I will share everything that I have with you. Now, I'll be kind to everyone, but to you, you will be the apple of my eye. You will have everything that I deserve. For you, you will share all that is mine. And he chose, God chose a people, always by grace. That means he didn't look around for the best ones as I'm taking you, 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 and you, not you, I don't like you. God chose people based on grace. There's nothing about them that you could say, oh, that's why God picked them. In fact, sometimes God's people in the Old Testament were like, I'm pretty sure I know why he picked us. And then God would send a prophet and say, stop talking like that. You are not better than other people. God chose you by grace. And that people was the people of Abraham. And then his son, Isaac. And then his son, Jacob. And Jacob's name was cho which changed to Israel. This is the people of Israel. And they were his, they were, uh, and God was their God and they were his people. Now you could join Israel. You could join Israel. You could become a Jew. 
The first time we see this incredible is that after the Exodus, remember God rescues Israel from Egypt? Remember he rescues them? He, he throws all kinds of plagues at Pharaoh until Pharaoh's like, okay, fine, let, I'll let the people go. And then God actually issues a decree to the Egyptians. If any of you wants to leave Pharaoh and join the, join the Jews and wants to become an Israelite, go. And the Bible records that a bunch of them did. And what's wonderful is that when they get to Canaan, it's not like they have 12 tribes and then a 13th for the Egyptians. Where did those Egyptians go? They just became part of the the Jewish people. You could join Israel by saying, I want Israel's God as my God. I don't want to be an enemy of God. I want God, the God of Israel, to be my God, and I want him to be mine. Remember Ruth said this to Naomi. Remember this? They're coming from Moab, and Naomi's like, go back to your people. Go back to your God. And what does Ruth say? Your people are going to be my people. And your God is my God. We also see this is true in a lovely way. A beautiful, lovely way. As Israel is coming into the promised land, you know, one of the major cities they have to conquer is Jericho. And Jericho is this city, this walled city. And we remember in Jericho that God sent spies to this city, a city that absolutely hated God and hated his people. And there was a lady in Jericho who when she heard about the God of Israel, she thought, I want him to be my God. I want his people to be my people. And so she hid the spies. She took great risk to her own life and saying, what I want more than my own life is to be the people of the Lord God of Israel. And don't you know that Rahab is one of Jesus's great, 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 great grandmothers. She became knit into the people of Israel Actually, the story of Rahab and Jericho is a very lovely way to picture this. Rahab says that everybody in Jericho has heard of the Israelites. They've heard of Israel's God. God made such a scene in Egypt that the whole world knew that the God of Israel was the God God who made the heavens and the earth. And they saw the Israelites coming. And they saw that they came with their powerful God who loved them and took care of them. And the people of Jericho were terrified. She says they're, 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 the men are all shaky. They're terrified. They knew God was God. And they hated him. They knew God, the God of Israel, was the God who made the heavens and the earth. And they hated Israel. It made them want to fight even more. And this we see when you find out that there is a God, one God, and that there is, he has a people, one people, and that you are not part of that, that you are by nature an enemy. There's two ways you can respond to this. One is to be rip snorting, mad, furious. How dare he say that I am not naturally his child? And then you see that he has a family. You can hate that family. I hate them. They say that God loves them. Like the Jericonians. Or like Rahab. 
say, I agree. I am not by nature a child of God. But I want more than anything else to be. And so we see that when Jesus gives this parable of children and a table and a family and dogs to this woman from from Tyre and Sidon, this Syrophoenician woman, are you not shocked at her response? You think, well, if someone said that to me, it's called me a dog. Are you kidding me? She doesn't respond angrily. She goes right along with the parable. And she essentially says, I agree. But can he please give me bread? Rather than going to her gods for this gift that she needs for her daughter, she goes to the God of Israel. And it is very humbling. I want nothing more than to be loved by that God. To receive what I need from that God. And to be part of that God's family, I want to be fed at that table. I'm not going to other tables. This is the table I'm going to. The God of Israel. Now, what is the bread? The table of God, the children of God, what is the bread? Jesus said a lot of things in the Gospels. I am the something, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Jesus is the bread, the bread that was promised to the household of God. And how would Jesus make enemies God's children? He would give him himself. His own body is what he needed to give in order to make that happen. And this is why when we celebrate Lord's Supper, we celebrate with bread and with wine. We celebrate because the body of Christ is represented by the bread. And it reminds us, what is it that we need to eat to have? What is it that God gives us to make us his children? And that is Jesus, the bread of life. And he hung on the cross in the place that we deserve. We deserve to be hung on a cross for eternity in hell and God punishing us as enemies. And Jesus loved us so greatly that he said, Father, give them what I deserve so that they can have my seat at the table. So that they can be treated as your children forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Jesus would become an enemy of God. And the love of God is shown so greatly in this. Not that he gives salvation to those who are already his children. No, no, no. God's love for us is so great that he gave his son for those who were not his children. But his enemies. Dear friends, pride is removed. Pride is removed. Pride is a great obstacle for some people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. Because we have to recognize that we aren't naturally God's children and that there is only, there could only be one way that God himself would do for us what we have failed to do. Now the miracle of casting that demon out of that daughter is a parable. It's true, it happened, but it is a parable. And it shows what is true for all who trust in Jesus. That he would not necessarily cast demons out of us, but cast us out of the kingdom of darkness. Dear friends, Jesus did not come to fulfill the prophecies of other religions. Jesus did not come 
to fulfill what was spoken by the gods and prophets of the other nations. Jesus came to the people of Israel because he is the fulfillment of God's promises to them. Yet, those promises were made to Israel, but they were meant for all nations. The Messiah of the whole world would come to Israel. And if you wanted to be saved by him, you'd have to come to Israel's Messiah, to Israel's God to be saved. Now, when Solomon is building the temple, made it of stone and precious jewels and fine wood, where does he get the ingredients for the temple? Where does he get the building materials to build the temple of God, to build the household of God? Where does, God, where does Solomon go to do that? What two cities? Tyre and? Where is Jesus right now in this parable or this story? Where is he going? Oh, he's in Tyre and Sidon. So the first son of David is Solomon, and he's building a temple, and he's getting the ingredients from Tyre and Sidon. The last son of David, the great son of David, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And where does he go to get ingredients, building materials to build his temple? He goes to Tyre and Sidon. He goes in Israel, but he also goes outside of Israel. Because the new temple of God is the church made of all nations. And so you'd expect the son of David, Jesus, who builds the great temple, you'd expect him to go to Tyre and Sidon and Egypt and Israel and Jamaica and Brazil and Mexico and Guatemala and Colombia and Kenya and Russia and Ukraine and Holland and Germany and Kazakhstan and Vietnam and China and Italy and Canada and, yes, even Michigan. Maybe. Because no one is naturally God's child. We are all there because God's only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave himself as the bread to enemies so that they might be God's children. I'm going to close with these questions, these reminders. Are you a child of God? who deserves to be an enemy even though you are God's child? Or are you an enemy of God? Those are the only two options. If you resent the idea, I would urge you, dear friend, to repent. Look on Christ and repent. Now I want to say a word to all of those who have trusted in Christ. If you are a child of God by faith, You need to enjoy the food that is now yours. Do not starve. Remember the love and promises of God. You can count on God treating you as a father. No one can take that away from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If your faith is in Christ, you are God's child. That means he is your father and he will treat you like a child. So when you are worried... Am I good enough? Have I done enough? Will he ever forsake me? You can take this to the bank. You are God's child. You're not a guest in his household. You're not a friend that he is kind to. You are his child legally. He adopted you. He bought you with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in order to now reject you, he'd have to say that Christ's payment wasn't good enough. And could you imagine him saying that about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Dear church, God loves you. Your sins are forgiven. All of them. Your sins are forgiven. All of them. Every single one of your sins are forgiven if your faith is in Christ, if you've eaten the bread of life, not by doing good things, not by imitating him, but if you've eaten the bread of life by faith, just by trusting in him, your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life. And God loves you, not as a stranger, not as a coworker, but as a child. Think about the greatest father you've ever known. Maybe it's your father and maybe it's someone else's father. And how much that father loves his children. And you will see that it is not even worth comparing that man to God. Because he loves his children way more than that man does. Lastly, we cannot undermine this temple that Christ built. The son of David built a temple out of all kinds of ingredients from all kinds of places, even Michigan and Holland. And he has built a family and sits them around a table. And we sin against God and his family by preferring one type of Christian over another. That is wicked and we need to repent. We can't do this for all Christians, but we can do this for the Christians in our church. We should do it for others as well. But this is something that we have to demonstrate. We are one family in the Lord Jesus. No matter our background, no matter the sins we have been forgiven, we are one family. And Peter is going to tell us in 1 Peter 4 that one of the ways that we do this is by offering hospitality to one another. Share meals with people. Have people in your home. Treat them as brothers and sisters because they are if their faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Eat meals together. And of course, do more than that. But this is very symbolic and helpful. And now, of course, it is fitting that we come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is this ordinance or sacrament that the Lord Jesus has given and he has commanded, do this until I return. And we're looking back on this, looking back to Christ's sacrifice where his body hung on the tree and his blood was shed for us. And we look forward to the great day of the Lord Jesus return, the marriage supper of the lamb, where he sits his entire table, his entire family down for a meal to celebrate. And there's only one way to that table. There's only one way to feast at the table of the God of the universe, and that is by trusting in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by eating of this, by drinking of this, we are receiving God's promise. We are declaring that we believe that the only way to the table of God is the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by eating this together, we are saying to each other, I want to treat you as a brother or sister. I think the promises of God are yours as well. This is why the Lord has given this to the church, that we might give this to each other to say, I believe you're also part of the family of God. And the only way to come to the family of God is by faith. The only way to come to the family of God is by faith. We are one 
loaf. There's only one loaf of bread, and that is those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they belong to him one way, and that is by faith in his sacrifice. And the Lord has given this to churches to celebrate, not individuals to celebrate. This is not something that you decide on your own. I'm giving myself the Lord's Supper. This is something that churches do together. And so, dear friends, if you are a Christian, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you belong to another church, if you're a member of another church that preaches the same gospel, any church that preaches the same gospel, we would invite you to join with us. Sit at our table, as it were, and we will celebrate God's promises. I want to ask the elders to come forward as I pray and uh, that the Lord would help prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper.